Good morning and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I'm your host, William Hill, and this is our typical once-a-month segment that we do when we sit down with the president of the seminary, Dr. Joseph Piper, and we talk about questions that you, the listener, have sent in to us dealing with matters of theology, uh, church practice, Christian life, those kinds of things. This is the program that you determine uh, fundamentally what we're going to have on the air today. So we have a number of questions already lined up. Dr. Pick, uh, Dr. Piper sent me his list last night, so we have those in front of us uh, for this discussion this morning and more about that in just a minute. do want to remind everybody about the GPTS website. That's gpts.edu. I mean, if you listen to this broadcast every week, you know that that's our website. But just in case, you never know, it could be a new listener, but that's where you can find out information about the seminary there at gpts.edu. And if you notice, when you go to the website, we do have a new banner that is on the top of the main page, the homepage there uh, on the internet. And that banner is pointing and giving information, very basic information at this point, about our upcoming Spring Theology Conference, which is going to be held March 11th through the 13th of next year. So you want to save that date, as it were. You want to start thinking about it. More information will be coming out very, very soon uh, as it relates to the Theology Conference, but I want to put that bug in your ear at this particular point and get you to start thinking about it. You don't want to miss this conference. It's going to be a very, very good uh, conference, and uh, so just put that in your calendar, pencil it in, pen it in, whatever you, whatever medium you use to keep track of these types of things. In addition, don't forget about the mobile app. We've had great response from it so far to date, and so we are um, very pleased to see people taking advantage of that free resource that you can use on your iOS and or Android device. Now, as I mentioned, today is um, our typical once-a-month sit-down with the president of the seminary to talk about your questions. This is broadcast number 52. It is November 26th, 2013, and this is segment four of our faith and practice segment that we do, uh, Lord willing, every month. So, Dr. Pipe, it's great to have you back in uh, in my office and studio, as it were, to talk about these. We've got a number of good questions today, so I thought we'd just, just jump right in because we're obviously short on time as well. Thank you, Bill. But before you do, let me mention something else about the conference. The topic's going to be uh, providence. Mm-hmm. It's a very important topic to be dealing with in these days, and we've got some wonderful and uh, very gifted uh, teachers. But there's a, a special thing going on as well. The Monday night of that week conference starts Tuesday at 1. Well, we have things on campus here Tuesday morning, uh, refreshments. I do a special pre-conference chapel. But Monday night is a special banquet honoring Dr. Smith. He'll be Mm. 90 in December. He now has uh, formerly retired. He's been emeritized. He is teaching this year yet one more course as an adjunct lecturer. But it's a time to honor him introduce more more formal way a chair an endowed chair but brand new news just off the press as of yesterday uh, dr palmer robertson who worked with dr smith in founding a reform seminary back in the mid-60s is going to come and be the special uh, speaker for the banquet we're thrilled about that and dr robertson also has offered to do uh, a, a special two-hour lecture on his new work on Christ and the Psalms. So we're working now on trying to do a pre-conference time with him as well. Mm. 
Sounds really, really good. So take advantage of those opportunities. And again, we'll put more information in your hands in the weeks to come, uh, certainly through the podcast and other resources as well. Um, so, Dr. Piper, we have, um, well, a lot of questions came in. Um, some are carryovers because we can't do everything every week, obviously, um, as much as we would love to do that. Um, but I think we'll just start is the list you gave me. I'm just going to take them in the order that you sent them to me. So the first question comes in from Michael from Grand Rapids, Mich- Michigan. And uh, I feel like I'm living in Michigan today um, here in Greenville. You know, I didn't move to the south for all this cold and rain. I could have got that in New York. But anyway, Michael writes in, he says, my question is a very touchy one in Reformed and Presbyterian circles. I want to preface myself by saying that I'm very thankful for my particular Baptist family and friends, and I do not want to impugn their character at all. However, it appears that it is now almost heretical to call Baptists out on their anti-Pado-Baptism. And those of us that do are often called hateful and divisive. Seems to me that while we can have some fellowship with Baptists, we cannot pretend that they do not have a deficient view of the sacrament. I think that many Presbyterians do not have a high view of paedo-baptism. So how should we approach this subject when many feel it is, uh, it should just be ignored? Michael, thank you for a very thoughtful uh, question. Let me begin by saying, uh, reminding all of us what Paul says in Ephesians 4, there's one body, one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of, our, of all. Baptism is a very important uh, sacrament given to us by Christ. It's a sacrament that expresses our union with Christ and our union with one another. There are many positive things, then, that we should emphasize. One of the real advantages of a paedo-baptist position is that we accept the baptism of the credo-baptist. I wish they accepted ours. That would be much more in line with the idea of one baptism. Some few of them do, but most of them don't because of the mode, or if you were baptized as an infant, they they will not accept that either. I think on our part, and perhaps it's just the way you worded the question, Michael, but... um, There's language here that would make me a bit cautious. Call out, uh, don't pretend they do not have a deficient view of the sacrament. There's always two ways to deal with error. As we do so, we must first recognize it's by God's grace that we have come to see the things as we see them. Many of us, when we first came to Reform Soteriology, Art for the Covenant, really got very militaristic about it. Uh, We do more harm that way. What we want to promote is biblical discussion. We want to go on the offensive gently why we baptize our children and the great benefits that are there. We can begin with, here are the things that we agree on about baptism, but let me show you now how this does apply to Uh, our children in the covenant. Mm. But you are right. We should not be quiet about it. We need to be gently uh, but persuasively uh, discussing the issue as people are willing to discuss it, not as a, a hobby horse, not beating them over the head, but looking for opportunities 
to explain to them, and probably on a broader basis, I mean, really get into the covenant and what it means, and what the covenant, how it was administered in the various old covenant administrations, how it always included children. Why now would it not include children? Lots of ways to approach it. So I do commend you for wanting to talk about this more, and I would encourage you to do so, but be careful to do so in a gentle and humble manner. I'm not saying you've not been that way, but be careful. All of us need to be careful. Absolutely. It's one of those subjects, even here, uh, we have some students that are, you know, have a different position on this, and, and there's discussion, obviously, and oftentimes how we discuss it is as important as the, 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 the matter of the discussion or the substance of it. Dr. Bill, Pope, I just, I'm uh, sorry. While we're talking about yep. baptism, let's jump over to the question about Roman Catholic baptism. That's question number, I ought to know, um, since I put these all together for for you, and I don't remember which one it was. Is it the one that came in by itself? No, I do remember the question. I just don't remember where okay, it is. Okay, it's question 14b. Ah, that's why. Okay, yep, that's right. Well, 14b says this. Um, this is uh, written in from David in Florida, and he writes in, uh, he actually has two questions. We're going to deal with the second question today. The question is, uh, I have had several conversations with people recently on whether or not a Roman Catholic baptism should be considered valid. Since most Presbyterians, or at least the, or at least ones I am familiar with, wouldn't recognize Roman Catholicism as a church, should we accept their baptism? Good question. Very good question, David. Uh, it is my opinion that we should not accept their baptism. That was the opinion of American Presbyterianism until the church was divided because of the war between the states, and in the minute Princeton uh, led the church uh, to accept uh, Roman Catholic baptism. Historically, the uh, Reformers accepted Roman Catholic baptism. There were a couple things going on, say, in a, in a man like Calvin. One was the Roman Catholic Church had not ossified creedally in some of its uh, heretical positions. Second, the Reformers were very conscious of the Anabaptist movement, which was a much more radical movement than our Baptist brothers and sisters. So they adopted that position. But the Southern Presbyterians and the tradition that the seminary is founded out of has always been a tradition that did, did not accept Roman Catholic baptism for a number of reasons. One is, as you have said, it's not a church. And there have been versions of the Confession that actually have said it's apostate. It's not in any way a gospel church. So its ordinances could not be gospel ordinances it really doesn't matter that the language is used of the Trinity. Uh, it still can't be a sign of a gospel of grace that they do not have. Also, for the Presbyterians amongst us, there's a very clear qualification about what makes a sacrament a sacrament. And one of those things is that it must be administered by one who is rightly ordained. And that is stated twice, once simply under the definition of, of sacrament, uh, but then also particularly 
under the uh, description with respect to uh, baptism that is to be administered by one who is rightly ordained. Now, we don't accept the ordination of a Roman Catholic priest. Mm. If a Roman Catholic priest converted and joined a Presbyterian church, we would require him to be examined and ordained. So I have great difficulty in thinking that we should accept the uh, sacrament administered by such a one. Now, the um, objection to that position accuses us of holding to the uh, era of the Donatist, which was an early church problem when some men compromised with persecutors and later repented, and there was an element in the church that did not want to receive them back and did not want to accept their their sacraments. But those were not those were men who were rightly ordained. Uh, those were men that had sinned and repented. Uh, we're not saying that these men uh, were rightly ordained, were in a sinful church and repented and left. No, we're saying they were never rightly ordained. So there really is no comparison with Donatism and the position that we should not accept Roman Catholic baptism. I encourage you to read the uh, arguments by uh, Thornwell in his collected works and R.L. Dabney. And recently there's been a, a debate. I don't know how to run it down. Maybe we can find it out and, and you can send an email to Bill. But Pastor Ryan McGraw, a Greenville graduate who pastors in California, has just had or is going to have a debate with John Fesco on this very issue. And I think that would be useful as well. Okay. Yeah, you can get that information to me. Um, if you have further questions, uh, the, web, the my email address is um, confessingourhope at gpts.edu. Um, and I will find out more. I'm good friends with uh, Pastor McGraw, so I can ask him about that. I remember him mentioning that, in fact, uh, not too long ago um, on this particular subject. So good question, and, and one that comes up, I think, often. Uh, we debate these kinds of things. Or, you know, the things we talk about in, in seminary, these are the ones, one of the things that we do talk about, and men do face when they go for ordination. That's one of the questions sometimes they get asked. Uh, how would they respond to um, a person's baptism when they came from the Roman Catholic Church? So these are things that we often uh, have to wrestle through. Jess writes in from, um, this is, uh, she's written before, she's writing again, and I'm glad um, that she's a longtime listener, but Jess writes in from Burlington, North Carolina, actually two questions, and it looks like we're taking them in order, so I'll give the first one uh, from her here. What advice would you give a member of a mission church, and that's in quotes, uh, who is entertaining pursuing a seminary education in the next decade or so, but cannot right now due to enormous debt and lack of funds? Well, Jess, the, uh, each of these kind of situations would vary from person to person. If I don't quite understand the relationship to the mission church, either the church now can't help you or you're taking your ex- extra money above your tithe and giving it to the church because it has financial needs, uh, those are, are things I can't really speak to, because I don't know what the mission church has to do with pursuing a seminary education. But let's assume it's just a matter that the person doesn't have the funds at this point to attend seminary. 
if we're talking to, if we're talking about a man who believes he's called to the ministry, then if his church can't help him, he still ought to press on if he really believes God has called him and pursue that, even if he has to do so part-time. We have a couple of things here that help men like that. One is a man can begin in the distance program where he can stay home, with, where he's got a job, perhaps a house, can work, and can start school part-time by distance. Or man can move here and work part-time. One of the things that we do at Greenville Seminary is structure our tuition. It's only $170 a semester hour. We deliberately keep it two-thirds to three-fourths lower than other seminaries so that men do not incur a, a greater debt. On other case, a man might uh, take three or four years and save and build up uh, a war chest so that he can then come mm. and study full-time. Mm-hmm. Now, again, I don't know, Jess, if you're thinking about uh, a seminary education. In that case... I would never encourage a woman to incur debt to go to seminary. Hmm. If a woman wanted to come to a Master of Arts program to equip her to be a better wife and mother or to go to graduate school or to the mission field as a teacher, we have a program for women like that. But that's not a type of thing that I would ever encourage someone to go in debt uh, to do. Very good. And then the follow-up question, it's really not a follow-up, it's entirely unrelated but it's from the same individual uh, again Jess from Burlington North Carolina what advice would you give to someone who has unintentionally burnt a lot of bridges in the past few years as a result of changing churches how might one go about restoring these relationships Jess that's a very thoughtful question and I appreciate your asking it all of us at various times in our lives make decisions that uh do cause there to be tensions or separations in relationships. Hmm. And even if it was unintentional, we do feel the weight of those things. And what I myself have done and what I encourage others to do is, let me back up a step. The church changing, has that come out of genuine doctrinal growth and spiritual growth? Uh, we need to be careful. There's a lot of church change today because I'm not happy in this church or my needs aren't being met. Those are wrong reasons to leave a church. But if changing has come because you have grown in your grasp of biblical Christianity and you felt that you needed to go to a church that you th- was more doctrinally sound, well, there are ways to do that that will be more proper. One thing we teach our students, and when I was a pastor, I'd as people who join the church, you take a vow to join a church. I don't think you ever have the right to leave that church without going to the officers and saying, I want to leave and here are the reasons. Please give me permission. Mm-hmm. Uh, we treat the church like consumerism. So if you didn't do that, that's the place to begin. Be to go back to the previous church or churches and ask their forgiveness for leaving in an improper manner. That's going to heal a lot of, of hurts right there. If there are people then that you think you wronged in the process, the beauty of the gospel is is the freedom to say, uh, I was wrong, forgive me. Or I didn't intend to be hurtful, but I see now that I was, forgive me. 
They're great words to be able to say in the hope of the gospel, and they're words that the Spirit most often uses then to restore these relationships. So where you think you have done wrong, even unintentionally, just go back and ask forgiveness, and I think you'll experience a lot of grace in that process. Mm. Well, well spoken, and and especially appreciate the aspect of vows in the church and members, um, as Dr. Piper said, just to amplify that. There's it, 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 we're, this is not a business. You know, I, I shop at Walmart. I don't like what Walmart does. You know, I don't have to shop at Walmart again. I'm not bound to shop at Walmart or wherever. But the church is, a, it's not that. And um, you take these vows, they mean something. And um, to then just jump ship for whatever reason. Oftentimes people are left in the church wondering why. They don't even know the reasons. And, um, and that causes uh, unnecessary uh, offense uh, in, off, in, in many cases. And so good question and very practical one that I think we all should hear and heed uh, what, what Dr. Piper just mentioned. Let's see, jumping over a couple pages, question five on the list anyway. Um, Sam writes in again, another uh, longtime listener. He writes in and says, Dr. Piper, what would you say to the, to the Christian who objects to the Westminster Confession of Faith's doctrine of the Sabbath on the basis that Romans 12.1 warrants worship in all of life. In other words, what is your biblical argument for distinguishing between the worship in Romans 12.1 and the corporate, family, and private worship of the Sabbath day? Is it not true that Romans 12.1 tells us that all of life is to be worship? How would you deal with this type of reasoning? Sam, thank you for the question. For the sake of our hearers, uh, in Romans 12, 1, Paul wrote, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. It's true that the New Testament couches uh, our response to the gospel and Christian living in terms of sacrifices offered to God. I don't think that's a concept that's foreign in the Old Testament. In the Psalms, you'll see this strain that obedience is much more important to the Lord than sacrifice. So that uh, surely nobody wants to say that, well, in the Old Testament, uh, a holy life was not as important or was not an act of worship. It was. It's just spelled out more clearly, as many things are in the New Testament. But there's two things to note here. First is, the New Testament never does away with the importance of corporate worship. Mm. The Apostle Paul was careful, for example, he's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem, but he stays in Troas seven days to be there on the first day of the week for the breaking of bread, the worship service. Writer to the Hebrews gives two particular exhortations. He tells us in chapter 3 that we are to uh, provoke one another. Uh, not to uh, forsake uh, the assembling of ourselves uh, together. And then in chapter 12, or chapter 13, he combines the language of the sacrifice of, of life worship and of corporate worship. Therefore, through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Mm. And do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So corporate worship is not underplayed in the New Testament. 
simply because language is used, uh, sacrificial language is used to describe the offering of our lives in obedience to sacrifice to God. Second, though, Sam, is the second commandment uh, has not been done away with. If we mm. rightly understand the law of God, the second commandment teaches us that we are to uh, worship God according to his word. Uh, and the fourth commandment is not done away with, as it teaches us to keep the Sabbath day holy. I really don't see how the two things at all are contradictory. The um, obedience in the Old Testament was important every day, but God set aside one day, particularly to be the day that belonged to him. And that's the same in the New Testament. So we have a commandment that it's a moral law that does not change. That's where we begin with the Sabbath keeping. That corporate worship is a part of Sabbath keeping is clear from the reiteration in the New Testament of that which is required in the first two commandments, that we worship the Lord God alone and worship him according to his word. So I would take both those lines in answering that. Hmm. Very good. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think that's uh, objection I've heard quite often, not necessarily using Romans 12.1, but the whole idea that if all of life is worshipped, then why is, what's the big deal with the Lord's Day? Well, and I think you just answered that question uh, very well. Our next question comes in from Germany. Um, though I don't have that in front of me, but I'm pretty sure this person <laughs> is from Germany. Um, since I know uh, I know of this family and a recent graduate, actually, of the seminary. But this is his wife, Hillary, writes in. And um, it's a question that I'm actually surprised we haven't had yet, <laughs> given the nature of the question. Um, but anyway, here's the question. Have head coverings for women. What is a right understanding and application of Paul's instruction for women to cover their heads? Thank you, Hillary. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Where Paul gives this instruction. We'll start with verse 3. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he's the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. 
Now, obviously, Hillary, this is a very difficult passage of Scripture. There are many difficulties in the text in addition to the one with respect to the head covering. Historically, there have been those in the church that believe that this was a mandate for all women in all times. That's one interpretation. The second interpretation is that this is a was a cultural phenomenon and has no bearing on us today. The third is kind of in between. It's my approach, and that is there is a cultural element in this, but the spiritual principle continues. I really would rule out the second interpretation. There's nothing in Scripture that I would ever be comfortable saying in the New Testament that is merely cultural and we don't do it. It might be time-based, such as Paul's restrictions on marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, time situation-based. He undoes those in 1 Timothy chapter 5. But just to say that that's cultural, that's the same argument that's used now for putting women into church office mm-hmm. and now being used for promoting homosexuality. That's a dangerous argument. So the only really true safe interpretations will be that it's still required or there's an element of it that was cultural, that is cultural, that it continues to be an issue, and then there's a moral principle. That's my position. And it's the last verse that I read that puts me in this position. For her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, in the Greek, the word translated for is actually the word ante instead of a covering. And so as I understand this passage, the apostle is saying that a woman should always have on her head a symbol of authority and femininity. Now that's what will change. So uh, Paul talks about a a shaved head woman. Uh, Obviously a shaved head woman does not have her hair on her head as a symbol of authority. Let her head be covered. And I think this is the same thing with men's long hair. That has varied from age to age. So you'll see some of the godliest men of the 16th, 17th century had long hair, men that were very serious about the Scripture. I think it all gets to having masculine hair uh, and having feminine hair. That's the part that will change uh, from time to time. So as I understand the passage, A woman must either have feminine hair, which could not be exceedingly short, but that length will vary, again, from culture to culture, age to age. And if she has feminine hair, her hair is a sufficient covering. If she has more of a masculine hairstyle, then she should have her head covered as this act of submission. Now, I think a good cross-reference for this interpretation is, in fact, found in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul says in verse 9, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. Now, if her head were covered in church, nobody would know if she had braided hair and had the custom of that time was to... Hmm weave into the hair uh, jewelry. Yep. But, uh, so it seems to me that by the time Paul writes this, that women were coming to church uh, 
with fancy hairdos. He doesn't say cover your head if you're showing your wealth off in your hairdo. He simply says don't demonstrate your wealth in the way you wear your hair. So I think, again, taking Scripture with Scripture, uh, although it's a difficult passage, I, at this point, am most comfortable with that third interpretation. Mm. Well said. And, and and as I said, it's it's one of those subjects that I'm surprised we haven't got that question yet. Um, seems to come up from time to time anyway. Um, but very good question and hopefully very helpful answer as well for you, Hillary, um, there in Germany. Uh, Daniel writes in, a uh, rather lengthy question. I'm just going to read it as it's put in front of me. And um, he says he loves the podcast. I'm a first-year part-time MDiv student at RTS Charlotte and a member of the Church of the Redeemer PCA in Monroe, North Carolina. Last week I was teaching on justification and adoption and made the statement that these benefits are ours by virtue of our union with Christ. Let me read that again because I didn't read that very well. He made the statement, quote, that these benefits are ours by virtue of our union with Christ, unquote. This came out quite naturally because I saw that statement frequently in my preparatory reading and listening. A member asked, wait, what do you mean union with Christ? I fumbled around for a couple minutes trying to explain how believers are united to Christ in such a way that we are in him and he is in us by the Spirit, and how the New Testament is full of references of us being in him, in Christ, with Christ, etc., I knew I had a lot to cover in the topic in the topics we were covering that day, and had to keep moving, uh, moving along. However, my weak explanation didn't do this uh, low, uh, low side ju- uh, justice. When I got home, I read up more on union with Christ, and I think I have a better grasp now. But I am interested in hearing how Doctor Piper would answer that question. Wait, what do you mean? Union with Christ. This sounds like a question you might get in uh, in one of your theology classes, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll ask that question just because. It's a good question. It is a good question, Daniel, and it is a very important doctrine that, for the most part, has been greatly neglected until more recently. I, I'm thankful to John Murray for his writings that introduced me to the concept back when I was in college and seminary in the late uh, 1960s. We look at Union Christ under two headings. There is the objective covenantal union, and there is the subjective personal union. Covenantally, we were chosen in Christ, Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the earth. And so he was given to us as the second Adam, our covenant head. When he came to earth, he came on behalf of his elect people. He obeyed on our behalf. He suffered, died, and was buried on our behalf. He was raised on our behalf. So that just as we fell in Adam and became guilty because of Adam's first transgression, uh, because Christ is the second Adam, our covenant head, he obeyed the law of God for us perfectly, and he satisfied the just wrath that was set against us uh, as sinners. So that's Christ as the covenant head. Romans 6 builds on that. We died in him. We were buried with him. We've been raised with him. The old spiritual, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Covenantally, yes, you were. Uh, Every one of us who's a Christian Mm. uh, actually participated in what Christ did because he was our federal, our covenantal head. So that's the objective union. That objective union is the foundation, then, of the subjective union. According to our 
confession and catechisms takes place through effectual calling and faith. As we're born again, we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That brings us into a living union with him. The union that Paul describes, uh, Jesus describes in John 15 as the branch in a tree. The Holy Spirit regenerates us as we trust God to save us. The Spirit of Christ personally indwells every believer. Mm. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 3, the Spirit's in the church as the temple. 1 Corinthians 6, each believer then is the temple of God. And so the, it's by the Spirit of the risen Christ that we are in this union with Christ that is vital. So all of our spiritual life comes from Christ through the Spirit. It's mystical in that it is real, but it does defy um, complete definition and uh, description. So the Bible uses figures to help us. It uses in, inanimate figures uh, of st- stones in a temple. It uses the tree figure I've spoken about. It uses the human figure of the head and the body. It actually uses the figure of, of the Trinity. Not that we participate in any um, sense of being in God in the way that God is one, but the union is intimate and close and personal. And so we have, because the Spirit of Christ indwells us, that we are in union with the triune God, because you never have one without, hmm. uh, without the others. Now, union with Christ, then, as you rightly taught, is the basis of our justification and adoption. It's also, though, the power of our sanctification. This is an, a confused area today. Calvin spoke of the... Um, Gratia duplex, the double grace, that because of our union with Christ, we are justified and we are sanctified. Now, he would say that justification is the major hinge on which the door of salvation swings, but that is not to neglect the other. There's teaching today in some Reformed circles that sanctification grows out of justification. That's wrong. Sanctification grows out of regeneration and union with Christ. Then there's a power so that when we call ourselves and we call others, as you'll be a pastor, to pursue that sanctification without which no one shall see the Lord, we call them back to the indicative, not just of what Christ has done, but who Christ is. The Spirit of Christ indwelling us is power then to die to sin and become conformed to the image of Christ. I would encourage you to read... uh, Memory, Redemption, Accomplished, and Applied. Mm. I think it's chapter 9 that is on union uh, with Christ. That is a a very uh, useful chapter. Outstanding. I was going to actually ask you to uh, point us and point the listener, listeners, in a direction there for some resources, but you did that for me, so that was, you're reading my mind again. Which, I don't know if that's good. It's small. It's not hard to read. It's a short read. <laughs> it's like a comic book. But anyway, uh, always got to get a little humor in from time to time. Question 12. We're running short on time, so we're going to have to either move rapidly or not get to everything on the list. Um, but minutes. Question 12. Um, Ryan writes in from Ottawa, Kansas, not Ottawa, Canada. Ottawa, Kansas. 
He writes in a very short question. Uh, what is actually a short question, but a lot packed into it. What is history of ordinary means of grace ministry and why did it fall out of favor? Now, do you understand the question? Because I'll be, I will confess, I read that question the first time when it came in, and I thought, hmm, I'm glad I'm not answering this. Yeah, I understand the question. But for the sake of our listeners, the phrase, ordinary means of grace, is a more contemporary phrase. And it's a phrase that identifies a, a philosophy of gospel ministry that f- focuses on um, the God-appointed means of grace preaching prayer and the sacraments, and the role of the Word of God. So we preach the Word of God, we pray the Word of God, we sing the Word of God, not just psalms, but all biblically faithful uh, hymns. Uh, We, with our senses, enjoy the Word of God in the sacraments. And then we live the Word of God. Now that means of grace ministry is, or the ordinary means of grace ministry is the phrase that has been coined in the last, I don't know, 15 years or so to describe this approach. That became necessary because within the last 25 years, we've had, or maybe 30, all of the uh, approaches now to worship, to make worship more attractive to, quote, those who are seekers, more attractive to the world. And so we have gone to uh, all kinds of innovations mm-hmm. with uh, contemporary worship, which simply means we're using other means besides those uh, in Scripture, besides those that I have just uh, just described. And so as churches have experimented with everything from uh, pop songs to kind of mindless choruses to skits and dances and multimedia presentations and jocular monologues and mm-hmm. And everything else, because people have come to the conclusion that simple praying and preaching and singing and use of the sacraments were not going to reach the lost. They're not really as concerned about building up the church. That gets neglected as well. Now, you talk about the history of this. This was simply what we find in Scripture. Old and New Testament, these are the things that God has appointed, preaching, prayer, sacraments, singing as the means of God's worship and the means by which God then will um, gather his elect and build them up in the faith. So in the Roman Catholic Church, period, these things then were in decline. So at that point then, you actually had uh, all the drama of the church services, and, and now the sacraments were no longer simple means of grace, but ornate, dramatic, idolatrous-type activities. Uh, There were morality plays, and many of the things that we see going on today were going on then as well. The Reformation then brought us back to the ordinary means of grace. And in the larger catechism, we find uh, question 154, What are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his mediation? The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to his church the benefits of his mediation are all his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for their salvation. Now, by salvation there, the writers meant everything from regeneration through glorification. Mm -hmm. 
And then 155, how is the word made effectual to salvation? The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the word and effectual means. And it goes on from there. Uh, The Confession and Catechism simply encapsulates the Reformation doctrine of ordinary means of grace. And that was the philosophy of the church until, as I said, the last 30 or 40 years. Let me add one more thing, though. There's two ways to do ordinary means of grace. You can do them well or you can do them in an exceedingly boring manner. Hmm. And unfortunately today, and I just heard a really interesting, uh, or my wife read to me a blog that one of our graduates, Ben Miller, who's up in uh, Long Island, just wrote uh, about this. Why in the world are we having boring sermons and boring worship? We're doing all the right things, but we're not doing them well. And so a lot of orthodox preaching is dull and boring. There's never an excuse for that. And orthodox worship seems to be mindless, and it seems to forget that we'd worship God with the whole body. So we need to do a much better job of preaching and of worshiping and of teaching people how to do and what to do in worship. So I, I, I don't want to stop with the mantra, ordinary means of grace. I want ordinary means of grace that are done uh, in an uh, excellent manner in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Yeah, well said. And, and just as a plug for the seminary, <clears throat> I saw the door open and can't refuse, can't resist. It's one of the things that the, the seminary, I'm a student, I'm a third-year student, and most of you know that, um, halfway through my third year. And um, one of the things that the emphasis of the school has been, and which I've appreciated uh, tremendously, is on what Dr. Piper just talked about. Um, on preaching, we have an extensive uh, preaching program. Um, it, it, it is sometimes scary um, to preach to your peers and and be criti- and to be critiqued uh, both positively and negative- negatively on things. Um, but it's extensive, and to make us to sharpen our skills and our gifts that God has given us. Um, in addition to that, there's a heavy emphasis on what worship is here. Um, and what it should look like, and from a scriptural perspective, obviously. And so you couple these two together, and hopefully we leave here and we don't have what Dr. Piper just described, this boring worship service that's mindless and empty and just we're going through the motions. Um, That's not the goal and not the emphasis here, at least it's been my experience as a student at Greenville. So I just wanted to throw that in as a plug. If you're thinking about seminary, I can't think of too many other places to go. But moving on now, um, quickly, this, I don't know if we're going to be able to even do this one quickly, but I'm going to read the question. It's lengthy. Um, but Mark writes in from um, New Mexico, and he writes, uh, thank you for the podcast in general, for the Faith and Practice episodes in particular, and thank you for listening, uh, Mark. We do appreciate it. But his question has to do, again, with this term, common grace, as used by at least some in the Reformed tradition. Some people I have talked with vehemently reject use of the term common grace and insist on the term providence to name the same concept or doctrine. They argue that that grace is particular to God's salvation of his elect and does not apply to his patience with and providence for the reprobate during their natural lives. Others I know whose Reformed credentials are impeccable use the term common grace without hesitation. Is it proper to use this term common grace as a label for God's dealings with all of mankind, that is, his patience in prolong, prolonging lives of sinners, even though we deserve swift judgment, providing for needs, causing the sun to shine and the rain to rain on just and unjust alike. Thank you for taking time to address this question. 
the last line of his oh. lengthy comment. Yeah, well, okay. Well. Mark, uh, thank you. Uh, one part of me wants to say this is tempest in a teapot, much ado about nothing. It really is a matter of uh, nomenclature. Those that use the word common grace are seeking to define the fact that God does these things as you describe them. He's patient and long-suffering. He provides for the needs of the reprobate as well as the elect. Now, there's one section of the church that vehemently opposes this because of they believe that God doesn't even do anything at all kind to the reprobate, and that everything is heaped upon them simply to further their judgment. Whereas Paul says it's on them to call them to repentance, mm-hmm. not knowing we don't know who the reprobate are. I have some sympathy, sympathy though, with not wanting to use the term common grace, because grace does seem to be used always with respect to uh, God's people. Now, it can be used in a more general way. Uh, Christ, who grew in the grace or favor of God. Uh, but when we're talking about things done because of God's grace, I think they're always salvific. They're always saving. So the term I prefer is God's general benevolence. Hmm. So, at the end of the day, I'm saying what most people, when they t- use the term common grace, are saying. But I think it just avoids confusion. Words are important, and I think by saying general benevolence, then we're not flashing red flags before those that stumble over that term grace used in a common way. But we're communicating clearly to all people what we what we have in mind. And so... Now, when I talk, though, about this, we also need to distinguish uh, the Bible does not teach that God loves all people. And that's not what general benevolence means. God bears long with sinners, those even destined to hell. Uh, God's not a father to all people. He's the creator of all. But uh, he does not have a fatherly love for those outside of Christ. He loved us in Christ. He chose us in Christ. He redeems us. He loves us as a father. So when I talk about common benevolence, even there I don't want to give the idea that God is is um, loving, kind father in some way to all people. No, he, he hates the sin. He hates the sinner uh, until one repents. Mm. Yep, well said. And you know, I got to thinking as you were talking about, you know, j- just the common person – I do like that general benevolence, and it's an expression of God's goodness. Uh, the reprobate, though we don't know who they are, obviously, as you just said. I always wonder about the people that we know, uh, based on uh, their lives, we, we, we have a pretty good indication that they don't know Christ, um, but it seems as though they're blessed in some sense with good things of this world. And David talks about this in the Psalms, why do the, why do the heathens prosper, why do the pagan prosper? Um, and that's just God's expression of he's a good God and um, a- another aspect upon which they will hear at some point in time, look at the things that I did for you and you rejected me. Um, more judgment being heaped upon them. But I do like that term general benevolence because that's what God is benevolent to his creatures, not just to his people, but his creatures in general. Uh, the fact that we have oxygen and we breathe uh, is, a, is, is a, because God is kind. Even cold rain. Even cold rain. 
right, let's go to 15. That's a reference. You got, you got time the for that? The most recent question. All right, 15. Um, this is, this came uh, in Monday. Came in Yesterday. Monday. It came in, yeah, very late, but we included it. It's Drew from uh, Florida. Uh, and he writes, in light of the regulative principle of worship, is it appropriate at all for churches to observe the church calendar? Is there a difference between the church's freedom to observe the church calendar and the freedom of families or individuals to do so in their daily lives? Thank you very much, Drew, for the question. Appropriate, certainly, this time of the year. The um, I would distinguish between the churches that require a church calendar observance— mm and those that uh, are free to have other services if they, if they prefer. There's nothing that requires us only to worship on the Lord's Day. If elders want to have other worship services, they're surely free to do so. But the services that should be mandatory for the people of God are the Lord's Day services morning and evening. And the historic uh, Reformation principle was that Every Lord's Day is the high day, and we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, which implies that we celebrate the incarnation of mm. the Lord Jesus Christ and all that goes into uh, the resurrection, namely his obedience, suffering, death, and burial. So I think it's wrong to require the observance of a church calendar. I think if churches want to have uh, services that would focus on biblical details in the history of the gospel, they are free to do so. I don't have a problem. Uh, in fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones put it well, uh, there's only two days a year that people come to church thinking about what you're going to preach about, mm -hmm. uh, namely Advent time and Resurrection Easter. It'd be foolish not to preach on what's on their mind. So even though I have always had the custom of preaching through books, I always would preach a sermon on the Incarnation at this time of the year, and I would preach on a sermon on the Resurrection uh, in the spring when the church is celebrating mm. the Resurrection, try to direct people to those biblical things. But, of course, I would also want to preach on those truths other times, and I would want to sing hymns and psalms that related to those events, not just at certain times of the year, but throughout the year as well. Now, one of the advantages of, of the calendar is, for example, most Presbyterians have never heard a sermon on the Ascension, and that's criminal. It's a very important doctrinal truth. It's actually highlighted in our catechism. And so when ministers uh, need to be sure they're preaching the whole counsel of God, and if you preach through uh, the Gospels, uh, you preach through Acts, you'll be able to preach on the Ascension, but be sure that people are getting some of these uh, key truths about the Incarnation and about the work of Christ and about his suffering the cross and his r resurrection and Ascension and session at the right hand of the Father on high. Now, the same is true in our families. Uh, if a family wants to highlight in family worship uh, the uh, activities of the spread uh, of the revelation of the gospel in the life of Christ, they're surely free to do so. It's not contrary to the regular principle to talk about biblical truths. Now, if underlying your question is the matter of Christmas observance, I think that's a bit different. I think that, unfortunately, we try to confuse two things. We take 
the observance of the Advent and we take the modern cultural uh, traditions of Christmas and we want to combine them, and they don't belong together. I think there's only three ways to go. Uh, observe the incarnation that time of the year and don't bring in the accoutrements of a cultural Christmas. Observe a cultural Christmas and don't bring in the accoutrements of a religious observance or don't do anything. Now, my preference is number two. We decided a long time ago that we like traditions. We like to build family traditions. Uh, we like the decorations and all of that. And so we have um, a cultural celebration that in no way we ever relate it to uh, the birth of Christ. I think that's appropriate. Others will simply celebrate the birth of Christ. That's appropriate. Others don't do anything, and that's appropriate. But I wouldn't try to combine them. Mm. Well said. And we are, as you know, out of time. But we do appreciate the questions of the listeners. Uh, as I said earlier, this is really your program. Once a month, you determine what we're going to talk about. So send in your questions. You can find that information at the website, confessingourhope.com. There's a, a new form. I finally fixed the problem with it. So you can utilize that form to send your questions very easily. You'll get a confirmation from from the website when you send your question that it was sent successfully. So I'm not sitting here manually emailing everybody every single time a question comes in to let you know that you got it. Now you get it automatically. And so it just frees me up a little bit. But um, use that form to send your questions in. And as I said, we do this once a month, Lord willing. So you drive this program, sir. Let's let them know, Bill. Uh, we have, have had a number of questions on uh, the Mosaic Covenant, Republication, and Two Kingdom. We're going to devote the next Faith and Practice podcast to those questions, mm. Lord willing. So if you have questions along those lines, now's the time to get them in. And sometime toward the end of December, we will uh, seek then to do a program uh, dealing with those questions. Okay, so those who have written in on this subject, uh, the, the Two Kingdom Theology, Republication, the Covenant of Works, all that hubbub that's going on out there. Um, I read Facebook. <laughs> it's out there. Um, but anyway, um, if you haven't sent a question about that and are curious as to it, send your questions in related to that. We're going to devote, as Dr. Piper just said, one entire program just to that, because we do have a number of them that we've bypassed uh, because we realized we're probably going to have to devote the entire time to it. So um, stay tuned for that information. As usual, if you want to know what's going on on the website, confessingourhope.com will have all of the broadcasts to date, as well as what's coming up. As I'm able to update it, I'm behind, but by the time you hear this, I should be up to date again with that information. And if you have any questions or comments about the, pro the program, simply write me at confessingourhope at gpts.edu. We do thank all of you for listening to this particular edition, and we hope that it is helpful for you as you think through these things as uh, we ought to be as Christians, thinking through these matters carefully, biblically, uh, using the, the minds that God has given us uh, to think rationally and logically through these matters. Until next time, we thank you for listening, and God bless.